Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID Calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters. And since March 16th, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is part six, visualizing disaster. And I'd like to introduce my guests for this conversation. Shannon Mattern is professor at the New School for Social Research. Her writing and teaching focus on media architectures and infrastructures and spatial epistemologies. She's written books about libraries, maps, and the history of urban intelligence, and she contributes a column about urban data and mediated spaces to Places Journal. You can find more about her work at wordsinspace.net. Heather Schulte is an interdisciplinary artist in Boulder, Colorado. Her work combines analog textile materials and techniques with digital material and design processes, analyzing the intersection of personal and public forms of language and communication. She received her BFA from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in 2003. And Jacqueline Vernemont is Distinguished Chair of Digital Humanities and Social Engagement and Associate Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Dartmouth College. She is an anti-racist, a feminist scholar working toward greater justice in digital cultures and a network weaver across humanities, arts, and sciences. And each of these three has been a guest on COVID calls before. So thank you all for coming back. Shannon, Jackie, Heather, it's great to see you all. It's good to see you too. Yeah, good to be together again. Oh, I, one of the things when I was putting together this group of 28 episodes to complete this part of what COVID calls is, getting up to the 500th episode, it was really important to um, to deal with a couple of these like nagging issues that just keep coming up. One of which has to do with um, the problem of large numbers, the just the pandemic and how it's been you know tracked from a public health perspective and also from an economic perspective. And so we're constantly inundated with these numbers um, every day, every hour. And, and what that has to do with the lived experience of this, what we've been going through. Um, and the other issue that I keep coming back to is, um, it's related to that, but it's, it's how to see this. And I was, and I mean see in the broadest sense, how to experience this, I guess. I talked a little earlier today on, on COVID calls about the problem of the origins of the pandemic. And I shared my experience of September 11, which was um, watching the towers fall for a long time on tape loops and not understanding what I was seeing and having to have it explained to me a couple of times before I could even, I still didn't think I comprehended it. And I, I think I'm not alone as a person who has experienced this cognitive dissonance of being in disaster and not being able to fully express it, understand it, see it. Um, so you're the three people I thought of um, immediately to talk about these issues. And I'm just going to open it up for conversation. Jackie, can I start wherever you'd like to start with those issues? Or if you don't like those issues, raise another issue. Oh, yeah. No, I'm happy to start there. Um... You know, I mean, I think the problem of large numbers is is a really significant one. Um, and I've been talking with my students. Um, I teach a couple classes that think about the quantification of, of human life and human death. And 
over the course of the term, we've been talking about like what, how do you make sense of the meaning? What do the numbers mean to you? Um, the ways in which in lots of places, lots of other situations, the numbers make sense in comparison to other things, right? Um, so, you know, this is why people compete about the number of steps they walk or the miles they've run or cycled or things like that, right? Um, and so I think there's a way in which a lot of people don't have much in the way of comparative context for the big numbers that are, um, right, the pandemic losses. I think there's also a, a weird way in which um, the pandemic numbers feel a little bit like, you know, when um, we see the the after the coverage after a big um, tornado, right? And they talk about how tornadoes come in and they'll get one house, but not the house right next to it, and not the house catty corner to it, but then they'll get like two blocks over and, and sort of decimate a whole area. And the, the sort of seemingly randomness or seeming randomness of that, I think there's something about COVID with that that is analogous to that too, right? There are a lot of people who feel like they haven't been touched, um, despite the fact that I think many of us would argue that we all have been touched by COVID. Um, even if we haven't experienced a personal loss, but I think there's a way in which um, people who haven't experienced a personal loss just don't see it in the same way, right? The numbers don't resonate in the same ways. And I, I don't know what to do about that, um, but it strikes me as, as a thing to think about, right? How do you wrap your head around really, really large numbers when there is no good comparison? And what do you do when people's individual experiences don't resonate with those numbers, right? When the individual versus the collective is at tension like that. Um, so those are some of the things that I'm thinking about related to what you just brought up. Heather, can I bring you in on, on that? Anything you wanted to comment on that or what Jackie said? Yeah, so um, our project, uh, some of which I have behind me for those who are watching on YouTube, um, what really grew out of this trying to grapple with numbers. I mean, numbers are inherently abstract. They're just a symbol that we use to describe a quantity. Um, and with, I mean, the way I remember teaching my kids is with objects that they could touch, you know, one is one and two is two things and three is three things because the numbers in and of themselves are, you know, you can switch them up. It doesn't really matter. We've assigned them meaning. Um, and so when you get into quantities that are so beyond an individual human's capability of like grasping, um, I needed to touch it. <laughs> and so I literally started stitching the numbers because I needed to have them some way manifested in physical form in front of me to try to even begin to relate. And it really quickly became impossible within like a few thousand. <laughs> um, and so this project went from being me as an individual being not necessarily forced, but realizing that I had to involve other people in order to make any sense of what was happening. Um, and it was just a kind of really beautiful corollary to what was happening that in these individual and um, kind of isolated states, it's hard. We were all trying to find ways to reconnect, whether it was through the internet, whether it was through, you know, windows or outside with masks on, socially distanced. 
Um, I mean, we just on our street figured out ways for our kids to play, like kind of <laughs> a little further away from each other, but still interact. And so um, a huge part of it for me is trying to find a way to humanize and, and to um, find the meaning in what these numbers are trying to represent um, so that it's relatable. I mean, whenever we talk about these big numbers, they seem to always get um, compared to things like the whole city of whatever no longer existing or, you know, an audit, uh, a stadium or whatever, the whole football field who's watching, you know, football game, um, that kind of thing. And I'm like, yeah, you can kind of get that. But um, when you then combine it with the idea of a pandemic, you were talking about the tornado. Um, I'm in Boulder. We just had a huge wildfire that ripped through um, our just south of where I live. And um, that was a really weird thing too, because it, had a strange pattern that wasn't really discernible. You would think it would just blaze like this strip because the wind was going so hard. It was like a hundred mile an hour winds. It really jumped around, but that experience inherently affected our whole community because suddenly we had thousands of people that were, were displaced. There were kids in schools, there were teachers, there were professors, there were students, there were um, workers at various um businesses around town. So it just automatically was this community wide effect, even if we weren't personally, you know, we didn't personally lose a home, we know people who did. Um, and just seeing the community wrap their arms around the crisis. Um, the, the technically third one we've had this year, because we were also um, subject to a mass shooting in our grocery store. Um, so it's been a very yeah, it's been hard. <laughs> it's hard to wrap your mind around what the long term looks like when you're talking this kind of impact scale. Shannon, can I get you in on this? Sure. So when I was last in conversation with you, Scott, it was probably well over a year ago now. And I was here with two of my st uh, students and a former student, Emily Bow and Aaron Simmons. The three of us wrote an article together that was published in Big Dad and Society last summer called Learning from Lines about different ways of visualizing the pandemic. So we looked at, we split up, uh, have a division of labor. Um, Emily looked at maps because she's a cartographer. Aaron looked at data visualizations and I looked at kind of aerial views or kind of 10,000 square foot views of the ground of space. So we can see kind of the lines of cars lined up at kind of drive-in vaccination centers or we can see empty parking lots or um, kind of ports, um, shipping ports that are kind of just stalled. So all these ways that we can look from the top down to see from a 10,000 foot view, the way life has stopped or the way kind of life has organized itself in different ways. Even the six foot grid that then we see implanted on parks and in grocery store lines. So just these new geometries and topographies, topologies, I guess we could say, that are imposed on physical on the physical landscape. That's what we focused on there. But then having um I came up through media studies, but I've been in an anthropology department for the past three years. And there, I mean, it's not as if I haven't been thinking across scales, but especially because ethnography is kind of the, the um, signature methodology, uh, I'm really trying to help students connect those big number representations to what's on the ground. So there, it's really interesting to think across media forms and how they allow us to add this thick data, this ground level data to these macro scale visualizations. So everything from, um, 
I've had students who were, I, I wrote a piece a couple last year about plexiglass, just the new role of this translucent or transparent screen that kind of creates this new permeable yet um, kind of uh, offers a semblance of protection, how this creates a new geometry or a new architecture, kind of transparent architecture to the space. Lots of students have taken up that idea and just seen how um, the, these on the ground topologies are manifested and shape their everyday interactions and movements throughout the city or wherever they might be. But then also I was just thinking about how YouTube, you know, the fact that uh, we have another genre that has arisen is people who are um, protesting mask mandates. So you have kind of the YouTube protest of people who are, again, venting their anger um, uh, in, in grocery stores and other kind of large or other places of business. And this is on my mind just because as I was coming into the city tonight, I read that the Senate has passed a, a measure to eliminate the mask mandate on public transit. So I was thinking again about how masks have been dealt with both at a macro and a micro scale and how we have different media to represent those, those kind of co those conflicts as well. So just thinking across scales and how different media lend themselves to those representations at different kind of scalar perspectives. Just linger there for a second, Shannon. I wanted to ask you. So, I mean, kind of what you're describing is a is a practice of taking, you know, what may be a, a large quantity, let's say, numbers of deaths from COVID, and then proposing a sort of set of translations into other kinds of visualizations. I mean, I'm thinking about this in terms of like, um, and, and so sometimes it's like quantities to quantities. So it's like, okay, you didn't realize when you were talking about this number of dead, like how much space that meant in a cemetery or how many refrigerated trucks that means, um, or how many masks in the landfill that means. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about like, what are some of the most profound translations or ones that have gotten people to sit up straight? But I'm, I'm curious about that. I'm also curious about how you do translation from quantity to quality. In other words, getting out of, out of the numerical, this number of deaths means this amount of whatever it may be, caskets, but then getting beyond those kinds of logics and confusing that logic, which I think is something that story has a role to play with here, but I'm not always sure how. Well, I'm sure Jackie and Heather have responses to this question too, but one thing that just immediately came to mind were the really powerful Twitter threads I read of healthcare workers. Uh, just the, the narrative, this kind of micro um, linear narrative of their day-to-day -day struggles and dealing with kind of the, again, on the ground operations of the overwhelmption of, if that's a word, the overwhelm of large numbers. Um, so that's one narrative form. It's kind of a micro mo mode of storytelling that I think really powerfully translates large numbers into individualized experiences and the affective dimension of the kind of the the um, that translation on on individual healthcare workers' lives. So that's one media form that was really provocative for me and evocative for me, and I, I know lots of other folks too. I guess Heather, the way you were describing it was was numbers also into the into the actual tactile work of of making, which is a different way. And you you said it's a really fascinating point. You reached a certain point, it's like you just couldn't physically do it, which is I guess a quite tactile and physical way to understand a large a large quantity. Yeah. I mean, um, there's literally like in my physical body over the course of stitching so much, like I get like little joints in my hands that start to hurt. Or, you know, if you don't use a thimble, you start poking your finger, even with a dull needle, it just eventually wears away a layer of skin or you get a um, callus. So like 
the, the accumulation of even a repetitive motion affects your physicality and your, your experience of the world too. Um, and making a physical object for me, especially when so much of what I was reading and the way I was interacting with numbers was on a screen I held in my hand. As you zoom in and out, like the screen stays the same size. So the way I relate physically to how I'm interacting with those numbers, even though there's a physical interaction with me in the screen, but the way my body interacts with that in space, it stays the same size, more or less. Like you really have to do an imaginative leap. Whereas, I mean, this, these pieces behind me are around uh, 30 to 50,000 stitches each. And, you know, one little stitch is one quarter of an inch. So, or sorry, not one quarter, one fourteenth. There's 14 stitches per inch. So going from the first case, and then when you are walking through a space where these will eventually all be hung together. Um, I mean, this is just six days that are represented behind me. So when you multiply that by multiple years, um, that the way you relate to it in space is very different. Just being able to watch people um, as they sit down with me and we work on these pieces together um, and talk through it, they just kind of have to stop for a second and kind of mm -hmm. take in what this actually is and like, oh, okay. <laughs> so somebody, right. and, and like they get the time involved too because making one stitch takes a few seconds at least. And then when you multiply that by thousands, I mean, I have some people that have been recording the amount of time they've been working on these. Um, and that, that um, slow process in relationship or contrast to this onslaught of information all the time um, is another part that's really important that has come out of this, like just so profoundly to really be able to slow down and mm. spend some time giving this attention. Jackie, just to bring you in, want to comment on anything that was said, and I really like Heather's idea there that somehow, uh, back to your phone, you could reach a point to where the phone itself should have to get bigger and bigger and bigger. At some point, we would be carrying these massive tablets. It would have become unworkable. But our technologies keep things very orderly for us, I guess, don't they? They do. Um, and I think that's, you know, in my work on what, mortality tables and death counts and and some visualizations things that tend to be numerically based right like part of my argument there is that those um impose or create us a, a sense of of control on the page or on the screen right um that there's if it's discrete and countable then you know it um and while you may not be able to conquer it just yet you at least can know it and name it right um and, you know, I think there's something, um, Shannon, earlier you were talking about like going between different scalar levels and, and Heather, you were talking about temporality. And for me, there's something really um, 
challenging that I've been trying to work through in my writing and also in my making about both like time and scale. Um, and I don't fully know how to grapple with it. I just um, submitted a piece that I'm mostly mad at um, in which I, I argued that you can't really write a linear t history right now. Um, in be, at least I can't. Um, as a mother of two young children and a person who's, you know, sort of out with students on a semi-regular basis these days, um, I feel like my life is being constantly sort of interrupted um, and that it has been continually for, uh, you know, since the great interruption of, of early March. Um, but even like the little sneaking interruptions that were coming in like January and February um, in 2020. Um, you know, so for me, I feel like time is, is not linear. Um, it hasn't behaved in appropriate ways. It's not moving. Its velocity changes, um, from moment to moment and event to event. Um, and so I can't count on, on time or scale to remain stable. And that for me, as a, as a person who's trying to like live and think whole thoughts and make whole things has been really, really challenging, right? This, this constant vacillation. And it, it, you know, it makes it difficult to feel for me to feel grounded. Um, and I think there's something interesting in the fact that there's like, there are lots of spaces in which control, like formal control, and clear, linear, predictable time that marches in a kind of um, clear, detectable rhythm. Like there are lots of places in the world, lots of situations in the world, lots of ways of knowing that don't depend on that. And there's a part of me that's been trying to figure out like, okay, so if I'm so unmoored by the absence of these organizing structures, how can I get myself to feel like I'm able to move with the ebb and the flow a little bit because I, I don't feel like these things are going to stop. Um, and so I feel like I hate the word resilient. It makes me really angry um, in part because I think it places like the the onus on the, the individual rather than the structure. But I want to feel less at sea. Um, and, you know, like Heather, I've been trying to do things with my hands. I've been trying to write things. Uh, you know, I've been on the Twitters with Shannon watching the things come through, you know, and I, like, I just don't know where, I don't always know where to be. Um, and I think for me, that's been kind of like the hallmark of COVID um, is it, I'm not quite sure where I am, but I feel very much in the midst of significant turbulence. I was going to jump in real quick. I think that makes a lot of sense because we're going through trauma and experiencing a lot of grief and neither of those ever functions linear linearly. They, they, I mean, it just, it comes and goes and comes and goes and hits you sideways and knocks you down. And, yeah. and it makes a lot of sense. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't feel good, but yeah. The discontinuities, I mean, it seems like, so, I mean, what you just said, Heather, like, like trauma, like lack of sleep, um, overwork, the many different things that make us feel time is not moving in a continuous way. Um, and that's important to note. I mean, I guess also, I mean, just look even at the charts, you know, even at the diagrams, there's, there's waves, there's surges. We've been using you know, even if public health has been using the language of discontinuity, 
there hasn't been, you know, clean lines moving in, in one direction. I guess if you zoom out far enough, you would. But I mean, been following it closely, it feels like we should be doing better with those discontinuities, with those irregularities of time. Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, Jackie, how you, how you feel about that? Because it's um, maybe it's it's different kinds of numbers. You know, there's the the quantities stacking up. If we're talking about cases and deaths, which is one kind of set of quantities, which is hard to grapple with, and then these other quantities, which do tell a a different story. It tells us where those deaths are. It tells us that they're not accumulating in in um, consistent rates, and that's that second story that I've been wanting to try to feel more and to express more. And the first one I've been trying to get away from because it's just cumulative and very, it's, I think it's, it's dangerous, frankly. I don't have a full thought about that yet. I, I think, I, I think the, you, know, you said maybe it feels like we should be doing better. I'm not, I'm not sure that one gets used to being constantly buffeted. Um, and I think the, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about recently was the way in which I sort of gave up on, I was raised um, to always have a five-year plan, five-year, 10-year plan, right? Um, and you're, from the, you're from the Soviet Union or? <laughs> It's just a family. Just just a family. Just, just a family. <laughs> uh, you know, and the um, I was always told that I would fail if I didn't do that, that I wouldn't be a successful human. And I'm a little bit of a chaotic human by nature. And so planning and scheduling things like that was really, really challenging for me to learn. Um, and I feel like um, part of what has happened is that I have to let go of of that future planning, because every time I do it, I get excited about things and then I get disappointed. Right. And so for me, there's the emotional roller coaster. And I think, you know, Heather's talking about grief and I think there's lots of different kinds of grief in this. Um, and for me, one of them has been like that. I can't plan. I can't count on anything two, three weeks out at this point. Um, and that's been really hard. There was a conversation uh, recently on social media where someone was noting that they had gotten a, a rejection on a, a submitted article. It was an academic. Um, and she was trying to figure out why it was so hard to process. And what she came up with was that she didn't feel like the reviewer acknowledged how much it took to hold the future in which that paper got accepted in her mind enough to like such that she could write it. They didn't fully recognize the the sort of effort that that took to hold together the possibility of a time when that article would matter. Hmm. Um, or that work, I think for me, you know, it's like that memorial, that idea, that, that writing, that class, et cetera. Um, and so it's, I think it's hard to motivate oneself when the future is so uncertain. Hmm. Um, and I, I recognize that it is an extraordinary privilege to be able to say that I have lived the majority of my life with some degree of comfort about the future. Um, it's deeply uncomfortable to to feel like I've sort of let go of that. Let me take a second just to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Heather Schulte, Jacqueline Wernemont, and Shannon Mattern. And Shannon, did you want to come in on any of those points? Sure. I have two things I want to say. One is somewhat personal, and I hope you'll, it's not inappropriate for me to mention this, is that um, I have seen firsthand in my family, going back to Heather's comment about some of us are just aren't 
perhaps prepared to process such kind of constant um, unpredictability. I think that given the isolation of caregivers for a large portion of the of the pandemic, um, just the complete lack of control over one's life has just been exacerbated. And I saw that with my own family. My mom recently moved into a memory care facility about a week and a half ago, and my dad was her sole ter- caretaker for a year um, of isolation, had a huge toll on him, her social isolation, exacerbated or ex- expedited her decline as well. Um, so I, and, you know, and, and time was so slow for me because I could not wait to go home to be with them to help. So it's something that my, my situation is not unique. I think anyone in a precarious employment position, anyone doing performing care, they certainly have for even beyond the pandemic live with this kind of flexibility of time that might be very disconcerting to some of the rest of us. The other thing I wanted to mention is um, I'm sure I'm sure not only uh, Jackie can probably and you, you, Scott, I'm sure can relate to this, but I'm sure it applies in other industries as well. Just the instrumentalization of flexibility and and equating it with care. We have been asked to provide be in some cases, endlessly flexible and understanding and accommodating with students, which under normal, uh, what's normal? Under most circumstances, I would want to be, but it has also meant it in, in, in kind of work bleeds into all aspects of life. There are no spatial boundaries between light kind of work and non-work anymore. And the um, endless accommodations for other people's um, circumstances doesn't really leave a lot of time for um, those who are expecting to be accommodating to have crises of their own or to have breakdowns of their own. So this this normalization and this um, managerialization of flexibility of time and space and responsibility is, I think, unfortunately, going to be one of those new normal situations that Jackie talks about also. Shannon, do you have an idea on how to offer a critique of that? And Because I, I think it, it moves across different different industries. And again, I think, I mean, speaking from my own industry in higher education, I can tell you the number of um, reports I've seen that talk about number of classes that successfully moved online, number of, again, the sort of quantification of a successful response to a pandemic that, yeah, you can look at it and say, well, that's impressive. Who did all that work? Oh, right. That was that was us. And right. We're doing I'm doing emails at 2 a.m. because I because higher ed is supposed to be a calling and I'm supposed to love the privilege of doing that. And I do, and I do love my students and I'm not complaining about that, but there is again, this sort of like visualizing this time outside of those quantities of labor. See, we need to be able to intervene in that way, but I don't know how to do it short of unionization. I think unionization is one of them. And interestingly, I was the director of our graduate program pretty early in my career when the part-time faculty had just unionized. And I was pretty shocked as a really relatively new pre-tenure person myself to read this contract and realize it's United Auto Workers. They really framed academic labor as um, assembly line labor. All you get paid for is contact hours. And now that I'm a director, again, in a different program, talking to a lot of our contingent faculty and teaching fellows who are getting paid for the hours they're in the classroom, they wonder, but what about, I'm supposed to be flexible, I'm supposed to be uh, endlessly accommodating the people who can't make it, I'm supposed to be recording everything, I'm supposed to be offering alternative rec- uh, assignments for people who can't be there in person. They're getting paid for those two hours, three hours in the, the classroom. Flexibilization has really elasticized the expectation of accommodation they're expected to provide. 
there, I think there are lots of places we could find critique. Just the discourse, Marxist, basic Marxism, for one thing. Also, all of the work about affective labor, feminized labor, care work, um, and things that are, have historically been pretty kind of flexibilized and and uh, uh, that defy um, easy quantification, even though um, kind of indus in industries and markets tend to want to put them into quantifiable boxes. You know, one of the things, um, I love the verb flexibilize, um, in part because it, it makes me think of like superheroes, right? Um, and, and I feel like there has been a kind of um, expectation of, of superhuman powers, um, especially for people sort of like in the middle layer who are getting squeezed from, you know, needs from consumer side and from man management side, right? People who are getting kind of squeezed in the middle. But one of the things that just struck me, given that we've got this triad of people here with you, Scott, is that um, the kind of um, craft work that both Heather and I have been doing, um, one of the reasons that women historically have been able to do that as like a major production of textiles for home and personal use is that it's something that you can pick up and put down right? It's something that can be flexible. It's something that's safe to have sort of relatively um, safe in the home, um, right? It's it's not dealing with toxic chemicals. It's not necessarily dealing with um, as long as you keep the needles up, right? And the pins up, you're, you know, if a, if a small child goes by and grabs a, a piece of fabric or a, a half done crochet project, um, the world will not come to a crashing halt, right? And so there's a way in which in, in our group here, you have a kind of convergence of people who are being squished by systems that don't account for care, right? And don't account for the time and labor. Um, and also a, a turn to modalities to go back to Shannon's earlier comment about, you know, looking at different modes, a turn towards modalities that, that don't require that you'd be gone for eight hours, right? That don't require that you can't get up and help with X, Y, or Z, that don't require a lot of like specialist materials, right? They certainly specialized knowledge, but you know, knowledge that has not necessarily been historically valued. And so I think um, I'm not fully sure what to do with it, with that, but I think there's something there um, in the sense of like, what are the, what are the modes that we turn to in a moment when the, the burdens are too great, right, um, to be able to manage effectively. But I mean, if that's true, if textile production is is in some ways I mean, this artifact, this gendered nature of it, that's an artifact. Um, well, I shouldn't say an artifact. It's a continuing piece of an ongoing, you know, structure of society, but it has a deep history of being mm -hmm. feminized labor. Is there a radical potential in that too? Because I mean, I come to Heather's work. And she really, she hacked it. I mean, she was like, okay, we're going to use this. This is a way to build community in this moment. This is a way to take things out of the quantities and force people to, to work and suffer a little. I don't think that was your point, Heather, but there is this sort of, you really have to own it and touch it. Uh, and then also the, the possibility for community making in the middle of a disaster. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm being naive about that. Heather, what, what do you think? Uh, one quick thing I would say, feminized when it, isn't uh, professionalized or um, right. uh, like guilds and, you know, like stuff like that. The, the folks that were making consumer goods for a long time were often men, right. tailors, weavers, you know, that kind of stuff. So um, textiles for the home 
household. Yeah, right. Whole, right, whole different right, story. Right. Um, yeah, no, I think that's, it's, yeah. I mean, there's a long tradition too of subverting that context because, because it was seen as, you know, like this quiet thing that the women did over there. There was a lot, there was a lot of use of, um, the time of women getting together to be able to talk about things that was not, um, it was kind of like a, a, um, what's the word like protected space, I guess it's, it almost enabled some freedoms. Um, textile production is frequently community based because it's very labor intensive. You know, if you're weaving, if you're spinning yarn, if you're dying, if, I mean, all kinds of stuff requires, um, a lot of labor. Um, and, and like Jackie said, like it's able to be toted around. I mean, literally the reason I went into textiles again was because I had kids and it was accessible to me. It was something I'd done forever, but uh, I didn't have access to like photography equipment once I was done with school. So I was like, okay, gotta do something else. Um, and so, and this project started because I had this big piece of fabric in my studio because I wasn't going to a shop at that point in time. Right. So um, a lot of it is like, what is around you and um, how you can take that and push it. Just pause for one second, remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. Um, we'll wrap up here in a minute. Shannon, I wanted to come back for you, to you for a second. Just um, so I wanted to think about antecedents for this moment and maybe some convergences. I mean, did, um, did the attempt to deal with the large and scary numbers of climate change before this pandemic, did that move the needle at all in terms of the way that these visualization tactics um, can get beyond the numerical or do these kind of translations as you were describing earlier um, or become effective? I mean, is it, did that help at all? I've been sort of asking guests to think about that connection between sort of preparation for the climate disaster ongoing and COVID, do you see any connections there or did we have to relearn something about talking in important ways about big numbers with COVID? Uh, I think there are definitely uh, uh, translatable or generalizable lessons there, but I imagine I have to think about this a bit more. Um, and again, I'm sure Heather, Jackie in particular and Heather as well have things to say about this, but I um, think that there ha there was some critique of the effectiveness of um, Kind of animations, global scale animations, uh, wondering if they were intelligible to people, if people really understood, first of all, the computing power that went in, the methodologies that went into generating these climate models, for instance, um, the sources of data, how data were harvested. Um, so there was some con consideration. And then there's also the rhetorical question is if you present doomsday scenarios, what good does it actually do? Does it paralyze people? And if you have this, these visualizations, not only of kind of the, the heat maps that show rising climates, but also the maps that show, for example, in New York City, the neighborhood where I live right now is going to be underwater potentially in 20 years. You know, what does that, what is the affective dimension of that? How rhetorically do those things work? There is some concern that it's paralyzing to people. So this is where, again, we supplement them with other media forms where we see like photographic projects where you see like the the the, the pathos infused image of the polar bear, the, the, the emaciated polar bear stranded on the 
the the floating iceberg and other forms of um, you know sound art has been used as well. People like um, doing recordings of of uh, melting, cracking glaciers. So there are different ways to get at the again the more micros not microscopic but kind of more egos egocentric scaled, which might have a greater rhetorical impact, especially when supplemented with or paired with these more macro scale. So I think some of those, again, cross-scaler multimedia translations that we learned from climate change and are still learning and definitely still haven't mastered yet um, right. are transferable to what we're thinking about with the pandemic too. Jackie or Heather, have either of you seen examples of that for COVID that you think are out there doing like work to, to make to make it real, to make it humane, to make it actionable? Uh, I don't know if they're successful. Um, I mean, you know, Shannon just brought up the heat maps and I was literally, you know, prior to coming on tonight, um, looking through um, various COVID visualizations and the heat map is, right, it's got all kinds of uh, fans right now, the COVID heat map, um, you know, as a way of, of, doing something different from the, uh, say, like the bar chart or the, the graph. Um, you know, I, I was at a conference uh, like 2012 or 13 in which we talked with data scientists um, about the failure of data science to communicate um, climate catastrophes effectively, you know, and the ways in which the, you know, storytelling had had tried um i think there as shannon was pointing out right a lot of a lot of lack of clarity around how the models were um, developed what what uncertainty is right um and how people should deal with uncertainty i think i think numeracy and and sort of data literacy in the us is, is a pretty challenging um context in which to try to communicate things with just numbers um so I think there are there are certainly tools that people have used. I'm not sure that they do any better um, than the climate change um, numbers did in terms of convincing people. I mean, we've had just absolutely banana pants, right? Levels of of non non interest in uh, COVID vaccines, in masking, in um, other kinds of um, effective measures. So it's. I think it, the the messaging in the U.S. has been incredibly complicated, more complicated than I might have imagined, even as someone who studied, you know, past pandemics. We should probably wrap up, but I wanted to just do a quick speed round. Um, if, if there's something you wanted to say, you didn't get a chance to say, and and then also just to think about, um, you know, I mean, a lot of disasters um, in the moment. I think the quantification seems seems like the only way to express them. I think about the Vietnam War and the and the daily updates that people got in there that my parents still talk about, about, you know, somebody coming on and and there's General Westmoreland and he's talking about the number of, of killed and the number of, you know, I mean, really start trying to render this terrible thing in that way. But it was really the photograph of the uh, of man being shot at close range in Saigon or the girl covered in napalm. Those became the iconic renderings of of that war, much to the consternation of, of the war, of, you know, the Department of Defense. And, it, and it's not either or, and it's more complicated than that, but I did want to sort of close with this question, and Heather, I'll ask you first, and it's really not fair since it's late at night there and you're probably tired, but um, do you think there will be a possibility of some sort of iconic image or textile 
um, something that comes out of this, maybe you've already seen it or you want to see it, that will stand in for this time, that'll do a lot better than these counts, these oppressive Um, I haven't seen it yet, but when you put it in the context of a future textbook, um, future textbook to me is a very expansive term. It might not be a simply a literal book in your hand. Um, I envision that as something really interactive and something I've thought about even with this project is figuring out a way to make a highly connected, if it's a website, if it's an interactive environment, something like that, that has hyperlinks and things you can zoom into and out of to where if like you have a date and there's like all these pinpoints on it and it represents a bunch of people who caught COVID that day and you can click on a link and you can zoom into where they're from or hear their story or, you know, just have a very dynamic um, representation from a myriad of perspectives mm. and points of view um, from people who got sick, people who cared for them, people who are doing service work, people who are, you know, testing wastewater, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, all these things that are now things that we do um, that have come much more into the foreground. Um, hopefully that's what we'll remember. I mean, I don't know, and, we're, yeah. like in the beginning of this war thing. So, Hopefully it won't become like the 1918 pandemic where it's like, and that was World War One, and then World War II. And then we just kind of forgot what happened in the middle. So I, I think you're, um, Shannon, I'll bring the question to you, but uh, Heather has empowered future textbook users in a really nice way. I like that. Well, I was actually thinking along the same lines and I'm glad you put future textbook because I was thinking beyond the print. Um, this is what I teach a maps class. I have the students make atlases because I explicitly asked them to think of five different ways of representing through different media format scales, their, 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 whatever their research question is. And one piece that I wrote about for the Haroon Faroqi Institute uh, two years ago was this video by Andre Jacques and even Munuera called the Transcalar Architecture of COVID-19. They are architects, so they're focusing more on kind of spatial representations. But there it's looking from them. It's very much like the Eames power of 10, everywhere from attempts to visualize the the um, virus itself all the way up to like images that show the decrease of like um, of, uh, of what was it? Um, carbon kind of carbon emissions during the pandemic. So from the global down to the microscopic. So that I'm, I'm, I'm sure they could, because again, they're, they're given their disciplinary inclinations, there's a limitation to what they're showing, but it's about a 10, 15 minute video showing hundreds and hundreds of different ways of representing, visualizing the pandemic. So something like that, I think would be much more powerful seeing again, cross-modal, cross-scalar. And available to the public, yes. through libraries and stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd like to see it engage all five senses, um, right? I think the things that I will remember are sounds or lack thereof, um, right? Uh, smells or lack thereof, right? Um, feel like touch or lack thereof. There's been a lot of lack, um, right? Um, Taste is one that's probably a little challenging, um, but it, there was also some lack of taste um, that went on. But there was also, I mean, you know, there's a, a part of me that wants not just the, not just the, the, the catastrophic harms, although I do want that, but also the, right, there was this thing in the U.S. with sourdough bread, you know, and then there was another, th you know, like, 
there were tastes, there were, there were scents, there were sounds, there were smells that were positive. Right. And I think, um, you know, the textbook of the future, uh, I would want it, I would want it to be like a multi-sensory capsule, right. That, that would, that maybe would be place specific too. Right. I, I can't stop thinking about the fact that, right. They had to change the air quality rules in, um, Orange County and Los Angeles County to accommodate the number of, of cremations that were happening during the, the peak, right? And what that must have been like in the air. Um, so I would want a, a multi-sensory capsule. Well, we'll wrap up there. Uh, that gives uh, publishers, that probably just made every publisher basically just like, well, I, I can't do that. <laughs> you, you just disrupted the publishing industry all at once in three minutes. Well done. Um, I want to thank, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to thank my guests, Heather Schulte and Jacqueline Renamont and Shannon Matter for this conversation, for staying up late, um, for helping to cap off this first part of the Restoring Memory collection of COVID calls episodes. I really appreciate your time and your brilliance. <clears throat> I'm losing my voice. Um, and I want to remind the audience that we will continue these COVID calls starting at 8 a.m. Eastern time. We'll be back to talking about memorials with historian Christina Simcoe. So please do join me for that. And then a full day of COVID calls to follow. So thank you to my guests and really appreciate your time and, and conversation tonight. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, this conversation was great. Thanks again. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID calls. Mm -hmm.